Lord Jesus, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. That we might find joy in you. Amen. So just over uh, a year ago, Susie Meister, who's a writer for the British newspaper The Observer, wrote an article entitled, The Business of Happiness is Booming, But We're Still Miserable. And she documents all these books that she read about uh, happiness, but she says after reading all of these things, she still finds herself just like those old men in the Muppets, cantankerous, sort of not happy. And she's given herself to social media, she's given herself to lectures, she's given herself to all kinds of different things, and she finds that society is much the same. She documents the fact that some 12% of Americans are on antidepressants, that 52% of students now report of being hopeless. And we also read how the APA reports that we are in the midst of an epidemic of loneliness. And then she goes into this business of happiness. She tells the tale of Oprah and how she has been on a crusade chasing happiness. And yet she reports that Oprah and her staff are overworked, they're stressed and poorly nourished as a result of their schedule. She then, Susie Meister, turns to uh, the business of prosperity gospel teachers like Joel Osteen, who sell millions of books teaching people in the name of Christianity how if you have enough faith, God will make you happy. But even Meister sees right through that sham. She says, quote, it lacks substance. And of course she's right. Then she moves to Mary, uh, Mary Marie, I think it is, Marie Kondo's minimalist approach. And she says the volume of her sales indicates how hungry we are for a fix. Most notably that stuff will never make us joyful. And she closed her, artic- she closed her article with these words of hopelessness. Quote, we read books, we have faith, we buy things and we purge stuff, but we're still chasing happiness. But I will still read another book on how to rewire my brain for joy, follow Instagram accounts featuring pictures of organized homes, and buy stuff because a celebrity told me to. Unquote. Chelsea ends her article. And so friends, I'm here to report to you that while joy eludes the masses, I'm here to tell you of the story of a true tale of a poor teenage woman that found the secret to joy. We find it here in the book of Luke as we continue on in our series. What you'll see as we investigate this story and as we look into the face of Mary and Elizabeth and John, what you'll see is that you cannot market joy, you cannot manufacture joy, and you most certainly cannot buy joy. Joy comes to us in the ways that the world does not teach us, but make no mistake about it, joy can be found. And we find it in this amazing woman named Mary. And just in way of review, last week we read how the Virgin Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel who informed her that she was going to give birth to a child whom she was going to name Jesus, which means Savior. She was going to give, uh, she was going to give her boy this name because that name indicates his mission, that he was going to be one that saves people from their sin. Uh, Jesus, uh, Gabriel told uh, Mary, his mother, Jesus was going to be great. He was going to be the son of the Most High. He was going to be holy. Gabriel said that she would be one that uh, he would be one that would be given the throne of his father David. And he would rule and be a forever king and a forever kingdom. He would be a 
king in a kingdom. And so Luke, the storyteller, in light of that last week, lays down the kind of storyline for his book. Uh, and the king and the kingdom we see found in Jesus. Mary, by grace, believes this promise. She says, amazingly, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. But we also find that Mary was told about Elizabeth. We learned about her a couple weeks ago, who has also been miraculously given a child. And they were to name him, the Lord is gracious, otherwise known as John, the forerunner to Jesus. And that leads us to Luke 1.39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We'll stop there for a moment. I find it interesting that Mary hears the words of the Lord through the lips of Gabriel, believes those words, and then rises with haste into the hill country to go and see Elizabeth. Mary, we see, wastes no time. This godly gal cannot wait to see how the Lord has impacted Cousin Liz. Can't wait to go see what happened, what she's heard about. You can almost feel Mary's joy in getting out of town as fast as she could so she can see how the Lord has impacted her cousin. Joy, friends, is found in hastily responding to the word of the Lord and going to see how it's impacting others. And so off she goes to the hill country of Judea, a perilous journey for a teenage girl at this time. We, we aren't sure exactly where Elizabeth and Zechariah live, but apparently it's in another kind of desolate town, this hill country, probably another city maybe similar to the unheralded town of Nazareth. When we think about these things, don't you just enjoy the fact that while the world might at this time be looking upon Rome or Athens or Constantinople or in our day, New York, London, Beijing, isn't it good to know that God is working among nameless peoples in nameless towns far from the headlines. No celebrities, at this time anyway, in this story. No posh houses or cars. But instead, a teenage girl, a poor teenage girl, and an old barren woman working and living in Possumtrot, Kentucky. This is the front lines of God's redemption. We think so much about big cities and the need for Christians to move into them. I've given my life to that. It's a good thing. I think you should do it. Stay here longer. Make disciples. But sometimes, I want to say back to the kind of pastoral elites that tell us about these kinds of things. I want to say back to them, you, you do realize that the Lord is probably doing some amazing thing in some tiny little town you've never even heard of. Like Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Or Mujali, India. Or Shushtar, Iran. Or Hong Kong, China. My guess is none of you have heard of any of those places. But my guess is also the Lord is doing something amazing in those tiny little towns. The people he's working there, working with there, they're probably not tall or handsome. They're probably not rich. They probably have little to no power. 
but I bet they're faithful. I bet they're doing great things for God. I love traveling overseas and just passing by these little tin houses, looking inside of them, just wondering, what amazing thing is God doing in that house? Well, Mary gets to this hill country. She shows up to Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. She's gotten off her Uber ride. There she is. Finally made her way there. And she busts into the door and she greets uh, Elizabeth. And the, and the moment she greets Elizabeth, we find from the story that the baby inside of Elizabeth's womb leaps. The baby leaps. Revealing, I think here, uh, what Christians have always believed. That babies in a mother's womb are children. They are not potential children. They are human beings. Made and protected in the image of God. And ought to be protected in the image of God. Not something to be done away with or murdered. But this baby, this baby in particular in uh, Elizabeth's womb, does not have to fear the wicked practice of abortion. This baby has, promise, has been promised for hundreds of years. And because of that, the baby leaps in the womb at the sound of Mary's voice. Elizabeth herself, we find, is dripping with joy at the sight of Mary. Because, because also, she, we see that she's dripping with joy because we see that she herself is filled with the Spirit. Jesus, or John, that is, the forerunner to Christ, he's filled with the Spirit. We know that. Look back in verse 15. You see it there? The child in Elizabeth's womb is going to be filled with the Spirit. We see also in verse 41, Elizabeth is full of the Spirit. And so Mary shows up, and these two are very, very joyful. Very excited. And so what is it that happens when we are full of the Spirit, when we, when we evaluate this? What happens to people when they're full of the Spirit? Well, what we find is that they're full of joy. But the question is, why? What is about being full of the Spirit that gives us joy? Why does John leap with joy at the sound of Mary's voice? Well, look at verse 43. We find our answer. She says again, Why is this granted to me, this is Elizabeth talking, to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For, we might say because, behold, when the sound of, the, of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So Elizabeth was joyful, John leaped for joy because of the presence of the mother of my Lord. Elizabeth blesses Mary as, uh, and the fruit of her womb. To bless someone is to speak life, to speak peace, to speak joy into another. And Elizabeth is full of joy, leaping for joy. John's leaping for joy because of the presence of Mary. The mother of the Lord is there in their presence. Now whether or not the Lord Jesus is in Mary's womb at this point is uncertain. But what is certain is that the precious woman, this precious woman, Mary, is going to be used to birth the Lord Jesus. They know that. And this seems to be the reason for their joy. Elizabeth and the child in her womb, John, are full of the Spirit. They rejoice when the woman that will give birth. They're rejoicing in the presence of this woman that's going to give birth to the King of Kings. These two guys are full of the Spirit and they're having joy. And the reason why they're full of the Spirit and having joy is because the presence of redemption is near. In fact, Elizabeth blesses Mary in verse 45 because she believed in the fulfillment of the plan of redemption. That is, Elizabeth is blessing her because Mary said, let it be. I'll be the one to birth the king of kings, to bring about redemption. In a couple weeks, we're going to see angels that show up on the scene at the birth of Jesus and sing with joy, glory to God in the highest. Later, we see in 1 Peter 1 where it says that angels long to look into the gospel 
In fact, Jesus himself says that he speaks the words of the gospel to his disciples so that his joy may be in us and our joy might be full. And so to be full of the Spirit is to leap for joy because the Spirit directs us to the person and the work of Jesus. John is literally leaping for joy in the womb because redemption is near. Elizabeth speaks blessings to Mary because she believed this plan of redemption. Luke, even kind of the storyteller here, even he is writing to Theophilus because he is joyful about the nearness of redemption. Joyfulness is erupting all over the story because redemption is drawing near as illustrated by the presence of the one that will give birth to it all. And I just wonder, I wonder, do we have joy at the nearness of redemption? Do we have joy in the thought of Christ the Redeemer? Do you? Or is this plan of redemption and the Redeemer, has this news become sort of old news? Familiar. Not really full of joy anymore. I share this with you as one that sort of has struggled with it in the past seven to eight weeks. I've confessed this to the elders. I've confessed this to the men in my own community group that for the last seven to eight weeks I've been walking around and it's sort of been like a cloudless, dim joy in my life. My heart has been dry. It's been hard. This is not normal for me. It's not my normal experience to sort of have this glumness. I've prayed, been in the Word, been praying, but the joy just sort of seems elusive. But you know what? There's been a couple times over the past seven to eight weeks where that joy has uh, kind of broken in, where the glumness sort of got broken up. The clouds kind of parted and joy came in. There's been a couple of occasions over the course of the last seven to eight weeks. And one of those wherein I found joy was in the last couple of weeks where we heard the testimonies of those four people in their baptism. When you heard Monica and you heard Dan, you heard Mike, you heard Scott talk about what Christ had done for them, and then we got to see it illustrated in those baptisms. Y'all, I was full of the Spirit. I was. You want to know how I know? Because I had joy in Jesus. I had joy in the fact that God was doing something in the four of them. I had so much joy knowing God was breaking in on those four people. And then also that joy is bouncing around in this church. And then by extension, it'll bounce around in this community. That's been like the one or two times. That one time is one of one of the few times I've had a, a whole lot of joy. I was full of the Spirit because redemption was near in these people. Redemption was near in this church, and it was so intoxicating. The joy of redemption can sometimes be elusive for us in the faith, but brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, it's not because there's something joyless in redemption. It's not because there's something joyless in the Redeemer. It's because there's something joyless that has gotten in on us. But friends, the joyfulness of redemption and its nearness to us, that's got to be the place that our hearts travel to day after day. Every single day, traveling to. One of the reasons why I think you see joylessness and hopelessness rising in America is because more and more people are trying to find their joy in all the wrong places. They're looking to money, to sex, to power, to traveling, to customizable relationships to bring them joy. And while many of these things are good gifts from God that should be enjoyed, listen, none of them are designed to make our hearts sustainably leap like John's. None of them. 
So I, I love my wife. She regularly gives me joy. But I cannot hope in her for the fullness of my joy. She, that is a burden too heavy for her to carry. I love my children. My children give me great joy. But they cannot carry the burden of my joy. They were not designed to carry that burden. I have the greatest privilege, I think, in the world of pastoring this church. No other place I'd rather be. And you give me great joy, but you cannot bear the burden of my joy. John leaps and the angels sing because of the prospect of redemption and the prospect of seeing and savoring Jesus in a world restored for His glory and our everlasting delight. The fulfillment of all of God's promises. And so therefore, friends, God is the only one that can bear the burden of our joys because God is the fountain of joy. He's the one we have to go to and find joy in. Doesn't mean we can't find joy in all these other places. Yes and amen, you should. But the ultimate joy, the true joy, the sustaining joy has to be in God because He's the only one that can carry that. Until you sustainably drink from the fountain of your Redeemer, your joy will remain elusive. Christ the Redeemer and the redemption that comes with Him, He is the only one that can bear the burden of your good desire for everlasting joy. And He has made provision for your joy at the cost of Himself through the forgiveness of sins. And so does your heart leap for joy in Jesus for joy in the nearness of your Redeemer and His redemption. Does it? And for those of you that are trusting in Christ, having joy in Christ, I want you to notice something else just briefly in this passage. And that is the presence of the community of the saints that fuels our joy in Jesus. Did you see it? Did you notice it when we read through it? After the preaching of the word to Mary, she makes haste to gather with a child of redemption. Her cousin, Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth sees Mary, she rejoices, not in herself, and what has happened to her, though they, she could have done that, and that would have been amazing, but she actually rejoices in Mary being the mother of the Lord, and that she believed the promises. John takes joy in Mary, the mother of the Lord. Uh, Elizabeth is not minimized, Elizabeth is, her joy is not minimized uh, by being in the limelight of Mary. No, she's finding joy in Mary, and what God's doing in Mary. And so it is with us. We gather with the saints for the intensification of our joy in Jesus. We gather, we be part of community so as to bring about the intensification of our joy in Jesus. So Restoration Church's covenant reads that we agreed to, that we promise to, quote, rejoice at each other's happiness. You heard us sing that a moment ago. Because by rejoicing in each other's happiness, we rejoice in God's redemption breaking in all around us. Just as we see happening here. So if you keep your life at a comfortable distance from the saints, then, friends, you keep yourself away from the joy of redemption that's taking place in the lives of God's people all around you. But if you snuggle up, if you snuggle up, not just sort of once or twice, but as a lifestyle, you snuggle up to God's people. If you rise and in haste make your way to the news of grace in another as Mary, not looking to minimize God's grace in another, so that you can look better, but instead you seek to intensify the joy of God's grace in another, not only will you encourage your brother or sister in the Lord, but you will get a twofer. Your joy will rise as well. So when's the last time you've been pumped about what God was doing in somebody else? 
No envy, no jealousy, but you heard about what God was doing over there and your brother or sister or that family or over here in that other church. And you rejoice. Oh, this is so good. This is so good. So glad this church is doing better than us. Praise the Lord. God's breaking in. We don't have to be prideful. The community of the saints fuels our joy. See, not only are we looking for joy in all the wrong places, making them the burden of our joy in ways we shouldn't, but also, as is evidenced by selfies and likes on social media, joy, friends, does not come by drawing attention to ourselves. Joy comes by encouraging others, because this is what the Lord has been doing from eternity. The Father has been encouraging the joy for for the Son from forever. The Son has been encouraging the joy of the Father from forever. The Spirit has been encouraging the joy of the the Son from forever. No envy, no jealousy, no contempt ever. They are excited about the Father. The Son is excited about the Son from forever. And we are made in His image. And so therefore, just as we see Mary and Elizabeth and John all finding joy in what God is doing in the others, so it ought to be for us. Fanning into flame. God's joy, God's life in others. And so this is what happens when redemption draws near. We've seen that joy comes at the nearness of redemption. We've seen that joy comes when we seek the community of redemption. Let's learn a little bit more by seeing how joy comes to Mary, by investigating Mary's song. Take a look at it there, verse 46. Mary's song. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. My old seminary professor, John Salehammer, taught his student, he taught me that uh, the songs in the Bible are sort of like the Disney songs in the Disney movie, right? You think about it. You think about the song like Let It Go. If you understand Let It Go, you understand the movie, right? I can't wait to be king, right? You understand that song, you understand the movie Lion King and what's going on. You know, a whole new world, right? You get that song, you understand Aladdin. So it is in the Bible. When we understand these songs in the Bible, we see the center, we see the heart of what the Bible is trying to say. We understand, not only that, we understand the joy that is to be had for all of the earth. And here, what we find in Mary's song is that Mary is magnifying the Lord, her spirit is rejoicing in God, her Savior, indicating then the central message of the Bible, therefore ought to be the central message of our lives, the thing that ought to be and is the central message of the world, and that central message is, no surprise, the joy of redemption. That's the heart of her song. 
the joy of redemption. Take a look at verse 54 and 55 again at the end. I believe that statement is what she's driving at in the entire song. It's kind of the, like the chorus. You know, let it go. The dog is 54, 55. That's it. That's the chorus. All of her words are informed by what she says is happening right in those two verses. Namely, that he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and to his offspring. What Mary is doing there is she's rehearsing the Bible. She's remembering the word. And I I think it's helpful to note that Mary did not have an ESV study Bible to go home and study. Right? She didn't. She didn't have, you know, the Gospel Coalition and Nine Marks, you know, feeding her blog posts every day. Right? She She didn't have an iPhone to go download John Piper's sermons. She couldn't do that. She didn't have any of that. None of that was happening to her. She probably would have regularly went to the synagogue and heard the priest teach the word. And she probably memorized portions of the Bible since she didn't have a copy of it at home to study. And she likely then just meditated on those stories, meditated on the Bible, dreamt about them, imagined them, feasted on those promises as she walked from place to place, as she lied down at night, just dreaming about those words, thinking about them. And I can't help but think, I can't help but wonder if Mary's favorite verse was Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Because that's the quote, that's the verse that she's quoting. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. An offspring of Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations. That's exactly what she's referencing there in verse 54 and 55. It was the central hope of the old covenant. And now, just guys, kind of imagine this. Having heard from Gabriel, having meditated on this, her whatever, 11 or 12 years, you know, like she's probably not thinking much as a baby, so maybe the last eight or nine years total, been meditating on that, hoping in that, dreaming about that, hundreds of tumultuous years as she considered the story of Israel and all of its tumultuous story from the difficulty of entering into the land to them being exiled uh, from the land because of their disobedience, and generation after generation, hoping in the fulfillment of Genesis 12 that this offspring of Abraham would come and be a blessing to all the nations. She's thinking about that. She's evaluating that. And here it is. She finds out that it's going to come through her. Could you imagine the joy of this woman? But I want you to notice there's a, there's a kind of specific aspect of the Lord that Mary is singing about, drawing out. Did you catch it when we read it? There's a particular aspect of that redemption that she seems to be highlighting in her song. The first and the last verses are sort of like the two kind of sandwich pieces, right? The two tops and ends. There she's highlighting God's fulfillment of his promises to save and be a blessing. But you notice everything in between, the kind of meat of the sandwich, seems to be focusing on a particular flavor of the Lord's redemption, the Lord's character. You can see it there in verse 48. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for, or because, here it is, He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Mary is loving the fact That God not only fulfills his promises, that he saves his people, she is loving the fact that he does it amongst the humble. That he does it amongst the low, amongst the weak, amongst the insignificant, amongst the needy. She's loving that. 
That's the flavor of her song. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of Disney song thing going on. She's just loving the fact that God is working among the weak to bring about his redemption. See, Mary knew, as opposed to the like Christmas song that drives me insane. Mary, did you know? She did know. Yes. It's right here. Did you read the Bible? Anyway, so she, did, she knew. She knew. Mary knew. And she knew, and she knew that the Lord knew that she was a humble, of a humble estate. She knew that. She knew that the Lord knew that she was of a humble estate, and she was fully aware. Mary was that it wasn't that God was not using some rich and powerful woman of the city, which He could have done, but instead God was using a poor gal from the city. He was going to bring all of His promises together through her. She was fully aware of the significance of this event. And she prophesied that every single generation would call her blessed because of all women, she was the one to bring the Lord Jesus in. And here we are fulfilling that very prophecy. Every generation for the last 2,000 years, from that day till this day, has called her blessed. She was right. And I'm sure that in considering this song, that Mary would have loved her brother Paul's words when he wrote to the church in Corinth just a decade or two later when Paul wrote that God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I bet she would have loved that line. That's the tenor of her song. So just now, in light of that, now take a look at verse 49. I'll just show, note the parallels as we walk through this. The parallels between the sort of strong and mighty and the weak and the low. Look at verse 49 as she's singing. I wish I could sing this for you, but I, I, don't, I, don't, know, I don't know the tune. Somebody needs to figure that out. But here we go. Verse 49. For he who is mighty, God, has done great things for me. Remember who me is, meaning her of a humble estate. Holy. And she responds in praise to that. Verse 50. His mercy is not for the fearless, but for the fearful. For the ones, that is, that know that they have reason to be in awe of God in light of the dirty rags of our sin. And she says that's true of every generation. Verse 51, he has shown strength in his arm and he has scattered the proud in their hearts. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and he has sent the rich away empty. Even the conclusion of the song is in itself a remembrance of the weak amongst the strong. Because we remember it wasn't the strength of Israel that caused the Lord to choose them. Right? It was the weakness of Israel that caused him to choose them. Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7. And here it is. For you are a people holy to the Lord, speaking to Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. So for Mary to say that he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, even that is an exaltation in the fact that the Lord uses the weak to shame the strong. And we could even point to Abraham himself there in verse 55. Point to Abraham. He had no power. He had no position when the Lord chose him. The Lord uh, even caused his wife to be barren. 
so as to show that He is the one that is mighty. It's not us to bring about the strong. And so we are the ones in need, as Mary said. We are the ones in need for His mercy. For His mercy. For His undeserved ability. That's what mercy is. Undeserved ability. We are the needy ones. And so here's the invitation in response to Mary's song, which is, of course, a response to the word of the Lord. Here's the invitation. Embrace your humble estate. Embrace the fear of the Lord. Embrace need. Embrace weakness. And rejoice in the fact that these are the ones to whom God looks. These are the one of whom he chooses to work through. So much of this world is enslaved to the spirit of the age, which teaches us to be stronger, to be faster, to be funnier, prettier, taller, more powerful, more gifted, more educated, work longer, travel more, buy more, get a bigger house, buy more, all these things, buy the latest gadget, and then you do this stuff, then you'll get happier. Believe what the cultural elites say is right or else. Or else you'll get left behind. You'll not get the job. You'll not get accepted. You'll be on the wrong side of history. Whatever it is, bullying you to think that if you perform good enough and you do enough good things, then you'll be accepted. Then you'll be worthy. Honestly, the longer I live, the more I realize that we never actually grew up past high school. Do you remember high school? Remember what high school was like? It was like the cool crowd, right? You had the cool crowd. There's like ten of them. And everybody, most everybody, except the smart ones, Wanted to be like them, right? Wanted to be just like the, like the really cool crowd, whoever they were. And they tried to dress like them and act like them and kind of get them to kind of perform, to kind of be part of their cool crowd, to be, uh, you know, kind of in the in crowd. And if you weren't those kinds of things, if you didn't act like them, talk like them, be part of them, if you then you got thrown in the scrap heap of irrelevance. At least that's what it was like at Orange Park High School in 1993. And those of us that were not in that cool cool crowd, which is probably most of us in the room, we felt beat down, we felt unaccepted, we felt unloved every day. And it weighed on us, no matter how hard we tried. And then some of us went to churches even that reminded us of all the stuff we weren't doing. So unintentionally, churches can join in the mantra of the strong inherit the earth. But I'm here to tell you guys, there's a better way. There's a better way. Mary's God has built a house on the scrap heap of humanity and he gladly welcomes all to come in, understanding their weakness. The slow, the short, the non-athletic, the poor, the minorities, the ones that don't know where the book of Habakkuk is or even if it's in the Bible at all, right? He welcomes them. In other words, God welcomes The Lord loves to use messed up people to magnify His infinite work. Isn't it great that He's like that? That's the lead into Mary's song. You see it there? Right in verse 46. That's the lead in here to Luke's gospel. And that's the lead into the gospel itself. Until you and I get to a place that stops trying to play the game of keeping up with the world, or even in some circles of the church, and instead we own the fact that we're all a bunch of sinners that need mercy, we will never know the joy of Mary. But, if, 
if we recognize that we are not only broken, but dead in our sin. If we recognize that we deserve nothing but the wrath of God. If we recognize that in ourselves we are not mighty, we are not strong, and we have no reason to be proud. If we recognize those things, then we can enter into the joy of the angels, the joy of John, the joy of Elizabeth, the joy of Mary, who sees all of God's redemptive activity amongst the weak and humble and says, my soul magnifies not me and my ability, but you, because I'm messed up, I can do nothing, and you're working through me. I magnify you. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because I know I need one. You get there, you'll find joy. You'll find joy. And your cup will overflow because you'll be so amazed that you got anything, much less a bedroom in the house of God, much less a citizenship in God's kingdom. See, if you and I can get there by the grace of God, understanding our weakness, our need, looking to Him for strength, then we will not just sing amazing grace, we will shout it from the rooftops with tears in our eyes and joys in our heart because grace won't be just something we have, it'll be the thing that we drink every day for joy. Brings me back to the beginning of this sermon. Joylessness pervades because, as we've said, we look for it in all the wrong places. In all the wrong ways. And God came to man through Mary. Because He was committed to our everlasting joy. This is an amazing reality. Go and meditate on Philippians 2. The one that has forever been happy in himself left the praises of the angels to enter into the scorn of man so that we might know God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus the Christ, though God, did not hold on to His glory. But He emptied Himself by becoming like Mary, becoming weak, taking on the form of a servant, being born as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross for sin. Therefore, Paul says, God God the Father highly exalted Him and gave Him a name that is going to be bowed at by every name on planet earth. There's only one name. Every name is going to bow down to Him. Confessing that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, that's the secret that Mary found. You can see it there in verse 47. Mary rejoices in God her Savior. Her soul magnifies the Lord. Them, not her. Him. You can look back in verse 43 and see it in Elizabeth who took joy in her Lord. And I love how it says there, my Lord, he's mine. Or again in John in verse 44, who leapt for joy at the nearness of redemption. All of these people knew what Mary sang about there in verse 50. They all knew that they needed mercy. They needed something they didn't deserve from the only one that could offer it, from God himself. And amazingly, the God of joy offers mercy for sinners who need joy in him. But it only comes, as Mary says, to those that fear Him in light of their own sinfulness. That is, it only comes to those that appreciate Mary's song and Mary's God. That we have nothing to be prideful, arrogant, or boastful about. And everything to be ashamed of in the face of a holy God. We get there, we should be ready to call out then to the God of mercy to show us grace so that He might then Know that we might then know the joy of salvation and then sing as Mary does. And we see, look at verse 50. We see this mercy 
to be forgiven of sins and to enter into the joy of God. Look at verse 50. It's available to every generation. That means it's available to you and to me. I know because I've experienced this myself. He saved me from my sins, which are many. And He has given me Himself. And I've done nothing to deserve it. And so, though it's sometimes, as I said, been hard for the last number of seven or eight weeks, my soul magnifies the infinite worth of God because He shows a messed up dude like me salvation, grace, mercy, something I didn't deserve. He rescued me from the lies that I tell myself. He rescued me from the lies in the world. And he directed me to the joy of Jesus and his redemption, my hope and great salvation. And friend, he can do that for you too. He already has. If you would join in Mary's song and call out to God for mercy in faith, asking him to show you mercy, show you the joy of his love. And for all of you that have done that, that call out to Him for mercy, our call is to enter into the joy of Mary's song. As I said before, own our weakness, own our sin, own our misplaced loves, own our seeking joy in all the wrong places, and plead with Him day after day to give us mercy so that we might all enter into the joy of Mary and magnify the infinite worth of God, rejoicing in God our Savior. This is the secret to joy. Owning our weakness, magnifying the mercy of God, enjoying Him forever, leaping with joy at the prospect of the nearness of our redemption. God has been faithful to deliver upon His promises. We're reading about that here. And so we should then come in response to that, knowing that we don't deserve Him coming to us, and rejoice and adore Him forever. And so, Suzanne Meister, the business of happiness is booming. There is a small lot of people that are not miserable because they found the secret. They found that joy is in Jesus, denying self, owning weakness, and living for the glory of His name and the life of others that we might help each other on towards heaven. And now we get the privilege to do two things. We get to sing with our tongues and sing with our hearts in the Lord's Supper. It's a great way to respond. Let's pray in advance. We agree, Lord. Like Mary, who said she needed a Savior and found one, we do too. We praise you, God, that we Uh, are ones that need mercy and you offer it. We agree, God, that we are weak. But oh, what joy there is in knowing that you are strong. We don't need to perform. We can enjoy your mercy. And from that strength, we then go to live a holy life, not on our own, but in you. What a joy it is to know that Jesus, your son, taught us. All these things I speak to you, so that your, my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. You're a God of joy and you are interested in our everlasting joy and you have made provision for it in your Son. And His redemption, like Mary, has drawn near. So may we rejoice, believing that we are not worthy of anything. And yet you've given us everything in Christ. 
Christ, and may we find our joy in Him. We ask this for His name and His will. Amen.